Please be seated. Good evening to you. We turn to the Gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 18 this evening. We pick things up in verse uh, 18 as Jesus is now making his way, uh, we remember, to Jerusalem. It will be his final journey to Jerusalem before he dies upon the cross, uh, pay for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're told that as he's making his way there, that a certain uh, ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit uh, everlasting life? We know from Matthew's Gospel and we know from Mark's Gospel that this ruler, who is identified as a ruler here, was also uh, young and also rich. So he is known as, when you compile everything together, known as the rich young ruler. And of course, these are all of the things that um, are put before us as the great goals in life that will bring uh, satisfaction. If you can uh, have power, you can have riches, uh, you can gain them early enough in life that uh, you still have the physical capacity to enjoy them, uh, that you will find satisfaction in life. And he's an evidence of the fact that uh, that doesn't happen. He's an extraordinary uh, young man because he recognizes that. And sometimes it can take uh, us decades before we realize that this is a dead-end uh, road that I'm on. And uh, sure, it may be a lot of fun. Sure, there may be a lot of uh, accolades uh, related to this, but it doesn't satisfy, even as we sang tonight, uh, the deep thirsts and the greatest questions in life. So there's a lot to commend this young man. He's rich, he's young, uh, he's a ruler, uh, but he is, despite all of those things, looking past them, and he is addressing the great questions in life. And I think it must be one of the great uh, mysteries to the angels in heaven as they look at our secular culture that is so given to distraction at how few people give uh, any kind of time in the course of their three score and ten to the great questions in life. How did we get here? Uh, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Uh, why do we die? What happens after we die? How can I prepare for death? And here's a young man who is grappling with those questions. And he hasn't found the answer to them yet. And he hasn't even found the answer in religion. When it talks about him being a ruler, he's not the governor of a state or something like that. He's probably the ruler of a synagogue. And so he's a, a, probably a religious official as well. And so uh, here he is and he brings this question to Jesus and that makes him a, a rich, young, wise ruler uh, to bring this question uh, to Jesus. There's no greater person you can bring uh, this question to. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit everlasting life? Now clearly he is in his mind and it's clear from his training probably under the Pharisees, and the idea that he, uh, that he thinks about uh, inheriting everlasting life, that it is on the other side of some long series of do's, of actions, 
uh, of human works. And that if Jesus will just tell him what those things are, he'll be happy to go ahead and accomplish them in order to have not only the answer to this question, but then also to be living in that answer. And so this is uh, the, the confusion that, that he has, the good questions that he's asking, but the confusion, the indoctrination of the culture. If you were to, uh, though a religious culture, if you were to ask the average person uh, in, in our culture, what, uh, 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 if they believe in heaven, and the overwhelming majority do according to the polling, uh, how is it that you inherit everlasting life? How do you one day end up in heaven at the end of this journey as opposed to in judgment? And almost everyone will say, uh, I need to do a little more good in my life than bad. And so it's the same thing. It's the timeless uh, question. It's the timeless uh, misconception that always needs to be corrected. And Jesus said to him, before he gets to the answering the question, he said, why do you call me good? No, uh, no one is good uh, but one that is God. And so he challenges the man's uh, addressing him as a good teacher or a good uh, rabbi, remarkable title for a young man like this to ascribe uh, to Jesus. The Jews believe that only God could be rightly called good, and Jesus affirms that here. And, uh, and so you might be able to speak about someone being a good man, but it was only compared to his fellow man. But only one, one is truly good, and, and that is God uh, Himself. And uh, Jesus doesn't deny that He's divine here, but the point is, uh, uh, you know, think about why you're bringing this question to me. Think about uh, what authority you think I have to answer a question like this. And if you're going to come to me as uh, God the Son and the Son of God, then you have to be ready for the answer that I will give you despite all of your indoctrination and even religious indoctrination. And he said to the rich young ruler, you know the commandments. Uh, do not commit adultery, so there's the do. Uh, do not murder, another do. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. So he quotes from the second of the two tablets of the Law of Moses, Ten Commandments, the first four commandments having to do with man's relationship with God. The final six commandments having to do with man's relationship with his fellow uh, man. And, uh, and so Jesus quotes from the second uh, tablet uh, of the law in quoting uh, these and saying, all right, if you are, uh, if you are determined to get to heaven on the basis of doing, which is the supposition that you're bringing to me, then all you need to do is keep these commandments. And he simply pulls six commandments out of the 613 commandments that made up the law of Moses, these six making up a, the majority of the Ten Commandments as being sufficient to drive home the point that no one can get into heaven by doing. And notice uh, uh, what the young man says. He said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So he's not only uh, a, a rich young ruler, and he's uh, not only intelligent and a thinking young man, but he is, uh, he is a moral uh, young man. 
He said, in terms of those commandments, I have kept those things from my youth. So it looks like, all right, well, we know the conversation goes on. But the rich young ruler doesn't know that it's going to uh, go on. And so Jesus now, what he does is he moves to the first tablet of the law. And the first tablet of the law at the very beginning declares, you shall have no other gods before me. No other master passion in your life that is greater than God. And he's going to show this rich young ruler that he has a master passion in his life that is greater than even God, and it is his uh, riches. I want you to look down at the end of verse 22, because this tells us the point that Jesus is making. Uh, How does a person inherit everlasting life? Come, follow me. It's by becoming a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, and that begins by putting my faith in Him for the forgiveness of my sins and salvation. So this is where He's leading him to, but He knows for this particular young man that his riches are going to be an obstacle to him uh, ever making that commitment now to follow Jesus and uh, follow God with all of his heart, his, his mind, his soul, and his strength. And so Jesus, when he heard these things, he said to him, uh, one of the other Gospels, uh, Jesus, it, it tells us that Jesus looking at him and loving him. Uh, this is a, the motivation by which he, he says these things. And so you, Jesus heard these things and he said to him, uh, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That's the end game in, in the, the thing. So i just like to see a, a show of hands here uh, tonight for how many of you have sold everything that you have and distributed it to the poor. Okay, for the tape, no one raised their hand, including uh, the preacher. And so, so Jesus clearly isn't saying that that's something that we need to do in order to have everlasting life. That would be a doing kind of thing. What he's doing here, as you see this uh, there at the beginning of verse 22, Jesus, uh, when Jesus heard these things, he said to him. This is addressed to a single individual, to this man. It's not a call to every Christian uh, to do that, though all of our resources should be under the direction of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus looks at this young man, and the events will prove it out, that for this young man, his wealth was the single great obstacle for him ever becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he puts his finger right upon that issue and is going to let him know, here is something that you love in life more than even God. God said, you shall have no other gods before me, and this one is before him. And before him is not in terms of, of priority, but even in his, in, in his uh, very uh, presence. And, the, and God, I think, does this really with everyone. Uh, 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 where, where we come to that place where we're asking the questions that the rich young ruler is asking, and uh, we know what is required in order for us to become a follower of Jesus Christ, to enter into a, a relationship with God. And then what God will do is He will put His finger upon the single great sin, 
the single great lust or covetousness that is in our life, the single great obstacle to us coming to know Him, and then call on us, like this uh, rich young ruler, to lay that aside to now come and follow after uh, Him. And it's called repentance. It's called repentance when we give our life to the Lord and that willingness to do that. Yes, I want to be saved. I want everlasting life. I want the, 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 the life that comes with you, and I'm willing to lay anything aside in order for that question to not only be answered in my mind, but become a reality in, in my life. And so he says, you lack, still lack one thing, one obstacle to you truly being saved and coming and following me. Uh, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure uh, in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sorrowful. And, uh, and, and I, I'm convinced that he understood that Jesus was quoting from the first tablet of the law now at this point. And he realizes, okay, nobody gets into heaven by virtue of doing. Because even if you can keep the second tablet of the law of Moses, no one can keep the first tablet of the law of Moses. And he was very, very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And so these riches are what constituted the obstacle for him. And Jesus said, that love for those riches is going to have to go for, for this to happen uh, in, in your uh, life. The other Gospels tell us, again, this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other Gospels tells us that at this point, he turned around and he walked away. There's no, there's no record of his answer, but at the moment, he wasn't willing, uh, clearly wasn't willing uh, to do that. And when Jesus saw that, uh, saw that uh, he became very sorrowful, evidently seeing him now walk away from uh, Jesus and from the disciples. And he said, how hard it is for those who have riches um, uh, to enter into the kingdom of God. And I, I don't wonder that he wasn't just kind of sighing that. Oh boy, another, another you know, person that is going to miss all of this because of their riches. And uh, we know that uh, the, the, the great obstacle with riches is that the tendency to trust in them, to assume that I'm better than other human beings by virtue of the fact that I am rich and they are not rich. It's very easy to begin to um, uh, uh, think about the worth of other human beings or, or our value on the basis of material wealth, certainly in a materialistic uh, uh, society. And, uh, but then the, the trusting in it, and, uh, and, and then if I'm called to surrender that to God, now it becomes that great obstacle uh, to coming to know Him. He said, for it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You read the commentaries and they talk about uh, Jesus talking about the eye of the needle and it was, a, um, it was an archway in Jerusalem and, uh, and you didn't want to bring all of the livestock and all of the animals through the main entrances of the city. And so you would get your camel to go down on its knees in order to make its way through this gate that was called the Eye of the Needle. And this is what Jesus is alluding to. And then they discovered uh, there's no such gate. And uh, 
There's a little bit of folklore sometimes in the, in the commentaries. I think Gail Irwin has the, the great answer uh, related to this. He said, uh, you can get a camel through the eye of, the, uh, of a needle, but you've got to grind them up real small. And, uh, and it'll, it'll take some time. And so it was just a saying for uh, the, the fact that it is humanly uh, impossible. But there's hope here, uh, no matter whether a person is wealthy or not. And, uh, but here, speaking of a person who's wealthy, and then the disciples, when they heard him say this, they said, who can be saved? And again, they were indoctrinated by the doctrine. It was a positive confession, kind of thing of the ancient world. And that is that if anyone was getting to heaven, it was going to be rich people because they were rich because of God's blessing, because he, uh, they were more spiritual than people that were uh, poor. And that's a convenient doctrine. It's, it's uh, very prevalent uh, even today. And so they said, wow, if a rich person can't be saved in the light of the teaching uh, of that, then who can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men uh, are possible with God. And so uh, God can even save rich people. And I, it's, it is interesting to think about uh, what God kind of... We know he's working all day, all night to bring every single human being, all seven plus billion of us presently, uh, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's working on. And only he knows what's involved in every single uh, individual. But uh, even with uh, where you'd look and say that person will never become safe for whatever reason, including wealth, uh, God has a way of breaking through when a person is uh, ultimately uh, willing to have that happen in his life. Well, Peter's listening to all of this, and, um, and he said to Jesus, see, we've left all and followed you, so we're willing to do what this rich young ruler uh, didn't do, and so what's in it uh, for us? You know, what's the reward here? And Jesus told them what it is. And uh, he said, you'll find uh, bags of money, uh, you know, stashed uh, 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 under your pillow of each of your beds tonight. No, that's not. P uh, Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present life, and then on top of that, uh, in the, the age to come, everlasting life. And so, it's interesting how um, the Lord, uh, how He uh, views wealth. And when He speaks about wealth here, Peter's thinking, well, what about, you know, and, uh, you know, what's, when's, where's the jackpot in this whole thing? And uh, when Jesus thinks of wealth, he thinks about the wealth of becoming a part of the body of Christ. He thinks of it in terms of relationships and, and the fact that even if all of our family members were to abandon us for our faith in Christ, we have another family uh, times a hundred that will uh, uh, become that kind of a relationship in our life or uh, give us a place to stay if we've been kicked out of the house as a result uh, of, of our faith. And so all of that in this life and in the, in the age to come, everlasting life. 
And then he took the twelve aside and, and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things uh, that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. I'm going to, and then he describes it, for he, speaking of himself, will be delivered to the Gentiles, will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So Jesus continues to try and prepare the disciples for what is going to happen to their Savior, to their friend, to Jesus when, when they get to Jerusalem by uh, this is what's going to happen to me. In their minds, they're probably thinking, and we're going to see the, this uh, attitude building in a crowd that is following Jesus beyond the twelve, is that Jesus is going to Jerusalem now. They sense something new is about the, different about this trip to Jerusalem. He is going to establish the messianic kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you, you're going to be in for a massive surprise. Because if you bring that expectation to what's going to happen in the next week or so uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem, you're going, going to be shocked. This is what is really going to happen to me. When he mentions there in verse 32, Jesus mentions the being delivered to the Gentiles, uh, even as Jesus has, has uh, uh, tried to prepare the disciples for this, multiple times as we've seen, this is the first time he mentions that the Gentiles will be involved and that the Jews will deliver him to the Gentiles. And so the whole broad cross-section of mankind will be involved in uh, his death and his burial. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things that were spoken. And the reason they probably didn't understand any of this, I mean, we read it here and we go, what, what's not to understand? I mean, this is known as clarity, how Jesus is laying it out here. But again, the indoctrination concerning the Messiah, the two portraits of Messiah in the Scriptures. He will come as a suffering Savior. He will come as a conquering King. They neglected the teaching of the suffering Savior, only taught the, the, pre, uh, predominantly the, the passages that had to do with the conquering King. And so they're loaded completely in, in that direction. So they couldn't understand what is he talking about in the light of what we've been taught uh, all of our lives? And it was because of an ignorance of the Scriptures that they, they remain still confused uh, at, at this time. And so it happened as Jesus was coming near Jericho, so he's about 17 uh, miles away from Jerusalem at this point, and uh, uh, far down below, it's a, a, quite a trip up to Jericho, uh, to Jerusalem from Jericho, a very, very rich, prosperous city. And uh, as he was uh, coming near Jericho, there was a certain blind man who sat by the road begging. And hearing, and that's a, a wonderful word, that word hearing, you can imagine that if you are blind, uh, then your other senses are going to be required uh, to try and make up in some part for your blindness. And uh, it wouldn't be hard for us uh, to imagine, e even if we're sighted, uh, to put ourselves in his place and to realize what an expert you would become on the daily of life 
People coming, people going. Okay, here comes the lady who's selling her pots. Here comes the person uh, that is selling uh, onions and the fragrance of it. And, and, and so you're getting a feel for the whole thing, but it's, it's not visual. It's, it's, uh, it, it's in your hearing. And so he's in tune with everything that's going on uh, around him. He hears a multitude passing by. So this is a bigger crowd. Something extraordinary is happening there in, in Jericho. Uh, and he, he knows there's some, some excitement happening. And so he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Now, in every kind of uh, subculture within uh, anywhere, there's a network that occurs. Uh, for instance, when we were downtown on 10th and F, um, in the early years, we tried to help people that we can help. But people would come in sometimes financially and different kind of, a uh, lot of different cons that were uh, uh, going on, and, uh, and, and we were learning about them. And, and then how to really help a person. And so, but if you would give somebody a, a certain amount of money to go take care of things, a line formed. Uh, and every person on the street, it seemed like in four hours, knew they're giving money away over there. And there's just this network. And you imagine, uh, here you are in this place where uh, you are... Uh, disabled in some way, either blind or you can't hear or whatever it might be. And you can be sure everyone who was a leper, everyone who needed sight, everyone who needed their hearing to be uh, given to them were aware that there was somebody named Jesus who was doing these miracles all over the land. And, and I, I can't imagine, you know, where, when people get desperate for a cure, they'll go anywhere and try anything. And, and so, Boy, blind Bartimaeus thinking, oh, what are the odds that I'll ever, he'll, I'll ever see him or he'll ever come across me? And then all of a sudden, one day he does. And you hear that he does. And he's told that Jesus was passing by. And, uh, and in, in contrast to uh, snooze you lose, uh, he is not going to miss this opportunity. And so he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Son of David was a name for Messiah. He has come to the conclusion, he recognizes, uh, e even from what he's been able to gather concerning Jesus and what he's been doing, that this is none other than the Messiah. He recognizes that. He recognizes Jesus' ability to have mercy on him, that is to uh, give him his eyesight, and he cries out. And, uh, and those who went uh, before, uh, they warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. God bless him. I mean, people will talk you out of all kinds of blessings and, and determine what's an appropriate behavior in terms of coming to God with our needs. He's not going to have it. Jesus is not going to go through Jericho not one more time. And blind Bartimaeus doesn't know that. But what blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus knows is, 
I don't have to wonder whether he's going to come a second time because I'm going to do what I need to do the first time. And it's a great message related to, to salvation or whatever it might be. And so he just continues to cry out to him. And Jesus stood still, commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, Jesus asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? Now that's an interesting question, isn't it? He said, what? Well, obviously he's blind. That's what he wants. I, I think Jesus wanted him to say it related to his faith. But this is kind of like, and, and I, don't, I don't want you to take me the wrong way, but um, we, the, you know, you talk about the, all of us as kids when we're raised up about that genie and he finds the genie and he rubs the genie and he gets three wishes and there's all kinds of jokes about it, right? Some of them are very funny. And, um, uh, but here, what do you want me to do? And so you would assume he would ask for uh, his, his sight, but maybe he wants a million dollars in Bitcoin or whatever's going on right now. Do you understand anything about that? I don't understand anything about that, uh, all of that. But that's why I, I never jump into these things. This is an aside. It's nowhere in the passage. Um, I always make the wrong decision on all of these kind of, uh, of things. And so um, I invested in Yugos a long time ago, and I thought that was going to be... I'm kidding. So he makes him say it, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight, and then he did what anyone who's had a, a Jesus change their life do, and he followed Jesus. He became a disciple of him, uh, of his glorifying God, and all of the people, when they saw it, uh, they gave praise to God. And then Jesus entered, and uh, this was happening on the outskirts of Jericho. Jesus now formally enters into the city of Jericho, and as he's passing through, now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, uh, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And so what we have uh, on our hands here is a real living uh, sinner, We've got the, the kids' song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And so we think of him almost, oh, I know a lot about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And he's the guy that went up in the tree and Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. It's a great song, I'm not putting it down. But Zacchaeus was hated in Jericho. And he was hated because he was a tax collector. And I won't go into all of it, but, but and, and here he is. He's head of the tax department. He's the chief tax collector there in Jericho. And a lot of trade went through Jericho. And the only way you became wealthy as a tax collector was by being, uh, making people upset. Because Rome had a very simple thing that they did with their tax collectors all around their empire. They sold the right to be a tax collector and all you had to do was just return that amount of money to Rome every year, and anything you could get out of the people beyond that, that was yours. You couldn't think of a plan to uh, uh, encourage corruption more than that. But they did. And he's become very wealthy. So he's the kind of guy, when we look at him here, to realize 
not just as a righteous person, not as just someone who knows God, but just as a regular human being, you would hate this guy. You would hate how he, uh, as a Jew, gouged the Jewish people, how he took and made a way of getting money from every single person, every way, living high on the hog by taking the last five cents out of the pockets of the poor. He's a detestable human being. He's the kind of guy you would really, really dislike and, and maybe hate. And, and uh, important to recognize that that's the emotion related to tax collectors and especially him. Well, he sought to see uh, who Jesus was, but he couldn't because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Probably would have also been dangerous for him to enter into any crowd and uh, get lost. So he runs up ahead of where it is that Jesus is coming, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, just wants to get a look at him, for he was, uh, Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, you're a wee little man, a wee little man. And that's not what he says there. Now that song's in my mind, isn't it? It's like a disco song or something. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay in your house. So Jesus addresses him and, uh, and uh, invites himself over to his house. It is interesting that here you have Zacchaeus, and he's running up to get in a tree so he can see Jesus. He's seeking Jesus in, in the best way that he knows at that moment. And then what he's going to find out is, is that Jesus has come to seek him in this place. I don't know how many of you experience this in your own life or what your testimony is, but it is interesting to realize how um, often once we become a Christian that we end up looking back in our lives and we realize how long God has been drawing us to Him. How long He's been protecting our lives from death, even for the day that we would then give our lives uh, to the Lord. And to realize one day, I am saved not supremely because of my search for God, but His search for uh, me. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so Zacchaeus made haste, and he came down, and he received Jesus into his home uh, uh, joyfully. And then there's that word, but, which means not everybody was joyful over all of this. But when they saw it, that is the, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, they saw all of this, uh, they complained. And they used this as an opportunity uh, to speak uh, evil of Jesus and uh, say, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. In other words, he can't be a holy man and associate with people like that. And then Zacchaeus, as a result of his interaction with Jesus, this is the then uh, of Jesus being in the home for we don't know how long, but as a result of his interaction with Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus then pronounced to the Lord, Lord uh, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore uh, uh, fourfold. Now, that's a, that's a pretty big dent in any portfolio. 
And it's an evidence of the fact that he's repented. His life has been changed now in, in uh, uh, going forward. He's not going to be the same person that he was. In fact, he's going to take care of some uh, dirty laundry that is in his past. And Jesus then said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. And then here's the, the whole point of all of this, the lesson beyond the salvation of Zacchaeus, the point for the religious leaders that were complaining about Jesus' interaction with sinners. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's what he does. He comes to seek and to save that which was lost. How in the world are people going to come to know the Lord, know salvation, unless somebody uh, seeks them out, as Jesus did here? Especially in our culture now where um, it's, uh, uh, it's more complicated to invite people to church or for them to come on their own. The Holy Spirit does that. But there's a lot more of that going on 20 years ago in this country. So the necessity, as the Great Commission said, to go to people. And, and so uh, this is Jesus, come from heaven into the earth, come to seek and to save that which was lost. And, and uh, we have increasingly, in the, the, the nation that we live in, the world in, in general, um, the uh, Zacchaeus was like uh, kind of notorious in the city of uh, Jericho as kind of this, this bad guy. But because of our culture and moving away from a biblical morality, moving away from God in our culture, uh, there are more, there's a higher proportion of Zacchaeuses uh, in the world that we come into contact with, people that you look at and say, I really don't like that person. I really don't want to be around them. I, I, don't, I, 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 I would be best served, and maybe the best thing for me to do uh, as, a, as a Christian is to avoid that kind of person altogether. And, there, and there's plenty of those, those kind of people around. Uh, you were one before you became a Christian. Just kidding. I'm going to turn this around, keep us humble in all this, myself included. And so this tendency to look at it and... Uh, to uh, just leave these people to themselves. Zacchaeus was never going to go to the synagogue. He was never going to go into the temple because the religious leaders would not have allowed him. And yet Jesus went to him. And as the world gets, people get more and more uh, difficult, more, uh, uh, less and less likable or lovable in the world, Jesus' example is going to be a very important one for us to follow His example that He is a lover of human beings. When He looks at people, He does not look at their title. He does not look at them supremely, their history of sin. He looks at them as a soul that needs to be saved. And under all of this damage that Zacchaeus has done to his reputation in Jerusalem, I mean in, in Jericho, there is still a soul in there that needs to be saved. And when the soul is saved, all of these other things will be taken care of as a byproduct. And to be able to look at people in that way. And what that requires is to just say, Lord, uh, give me a heart like you.
Give me a hard life. I, 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 when, when I look at a Zacchaeus, whether 2,000 years ago, or a Zacchaeus that is just ripping people off and making himself rich uh, off of them, uh, I, I, uh, uh, I don't have a love in myself for those kind of, of people. And uh, would you give me your love for them? Because who else is going to reach them with the gospel except for us? And then trust the Lord as He certainly will to give us that kind of love and that kind of a Christ-likeness. And then uh, verse 11, Now as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable to them. And the reason that He spoke this parable to them is because He was uh, near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So there's an electricity in this crowd. And they are very convinced that Jesus is now going to go into Jerusalem. Uh, None of this suffering Savior thing. He's going to establish the kingdom of God. He's going to be the conquering uh, king. And so now, even as Jesus tried to prepare the twelve for the fact that it's not going to go that way, now he uh, tries to uh, prepare uh, the larger crowd for that fact as well. And therefore, we're told, he said the parable that there was a certain man, uh, a nobleman, who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom uh, and uh, to uh, return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, uh, occupy till I come or do business till I come. But his citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man uh, to reign over us. So in this parable, right at the onset, we have three principal characters within, uh, within the parable. First, you have the nobleman who's leaving on this long uh, journey, and it represents Jesus himself. And, uh, and it represents the time between his uh, departure, his ascension into heaven after his first coming, and then the time until uh, uh, his return, and uh, as he would leave to receive a kingdom and then to return. And then there, in verse 14, there are his subjects who hated him, and they represent all those that uh, rejected Jesus' claim as the Son of God, rejected His claim as the Messiah, and chief among them were the Jewish religious leaders. And then third, it's a very simple parable, third, there were uh, the servants of this uh, master, ten of his servants, and, uh, and he proceeds to give them a, uh, a mina uh, there in verse 13, gave each one of them a mina and uh, told to do business or to occupy till I come. And Amina was a very significant sum of money. It represented uh, a third to half a year wages for a laboring man. So you can work that out in, in your own mind. In other words, it was enough to make a difference in the world. And he gave them enough to make a difference uh, in the world. One of the great uh, things that's important to understand related to this uh, in order to understand the parable is to understand what does the mina represent. Um, The the mina cannot represent uh, spiritual gifts that God gives to Christians because 
Every Christian receives one spiritual gift, at least, and, um, uh, but some receive more than that. And so it has to be something that every single Christian uh, receives, and we receive in an equal measure. And I think there's two things that Jesus is talking about here in this mina. Number one, it represents the gospel. It represents the gospel. And when Jesus says, here, take this mina, do business until I come, he's saying, put it into circulation. Put it, this money, uh, put, uh, put this gospel into circulation in your time in human history in the same way that a savvy businessman puts his money into circulation in the business realm in order for it to uh, in, uh, increase. But he doesn't even put the increase on the 10. He just says, put it in circulation, he'll take care of the increase. Represents the gospel. And then it also represents God's specific call, His individual call uh, upon uh, each of our lives. And uh, each of us has a different call, uh, a different race that's that's individual. Uh, Paul talks about at the end of his life that he had run his race. He had a race that was different than other people being an apostle but it was still a plan of God for his life. And each and every one of us has that plan of God for our lives. And to live out his plan for our lives in whatever context he's called us to do that in and then put the gospel into play in that environment. And so it was when he returned, uh, speaking of Jesus' uh, coming return, and so this, uh, this period between uh, the, uh, first, uh, his first coming and second coming is 2,000 years and, and counting, rapture of the church. And so it was when he had returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading, by just putting their lives into circulation, putting the gospel into circulation uh, in the the nitty-gritty of the world. And this is called the Bema Seat of Christ, where every Christian, none of us are going to stand before the white throne judgment of Christ, but every Christian will stand before the Bema Seat of Christ or the reward seat of Christ, and we will give an account for um, our faithfulness to God's call upon his, our, his individual call upon each of our lives and then be rewarded accordingly uh, for that. And that's what's being pictured here. And so the first of the ten came and saying, Master, your uh, mina has earned ten minas. Wow, I want to know his name and, and get my 50 cents into his hands in terms of investment. I wonder if he's doing Bitcoin. Do you think? I said, we'll leave it alone. We'll leave it alone. And so he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little have authority over ten cities. And this may speak to the fact that the reward is um, how much authority that we're given as we rule and reign as Christians with Jesus, certainly under him, during the kingdom age, during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so uh, here he is. He's going to be given uh, authority over ten cities or uh, 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 something of of great significance. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. And likewise he said to him, 
You'll be over five cities. And then another came saying, Master, here's your mina. I got it right here with my buffalo nickel. And uh, uh, I have put it, kept it, and uh, put it away in a handkerchief and and, uh, kept it uh, safe to return to you. And then he gave the reasons for why it it hadn't been multiplied. He disobeyed what God, what Jesus, the Master told him to do. And that is, do business till I come. Put put who and what you are in the gospel into circulation. Uh, Don't bury it in, in in a napkin, which is what the man did. And so he knows he's busted, but now he's going to make excuses. And uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is Adam right out of the Garden of Eden. He's going to point fingers at everybody, uh, mainly God, for his failure. He said, for I feared you because you're an, you're an austere man. You know, the reason that I, I never shared the gospel with anyone, the reason that I never really got going on what you called me to do is that um, I was afraid that I, I would flub it and, uh, and make a mess of everything. Well, join the crowd. There's one of us that serves the Lord that doesn't flub it and make a mess of anything. That's not the point. The point is that he makes something out of our lives that's so wonderful that people marvel at the fact that he can expand any kingdom by using people like us when he ought to be using angels if you're just going to take it that way. But, but all of this is to the praise of the glory of his grace. And, and so this, that, escape, that excuse just isn't going to fly at all. And then his second excuse is, you collect where you do not deposit, and you reap where you, uh, uh, you collect where you did not deposit, and you reap uh, what you did not sow. And this is another uh, prevalent attitude in terms of serving the Lord or sharing the gospel. And, when a, and one of the things that can come to a person's mind, a Christian's mind, our mind, is God's going to do what He's going to do anyway. He's going to save who He's going to save anyway. Nobody's salvation is going to be based upon anything as weak or tenuous as me. So nobody's salvation is going to hang in the balance. He's going to do what He's going to do. But that's not the issue. That's not, that's not what Jesus is, is talking uh, about here. Of course He can do that. And He will do that. But the point is, each of us are to be in, engaged in that work. And so he kind of hides behind uh, the sovereignty and the predestination of of God for his failure. And then the master said to him, "Uh, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And why did you not then put my money in the bank uh, uh, that at my coming... I might have collected it with interest. You didn't even do the bare minimum here uh, of, of parking it in a, 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 a bank account to get, what is it, half a percent annually uh, presently? I'm sure the rate was a little bit better uh, in the ancient world. And, uh, and so Jesus said, you didn't even bother to do uh, the, the smallest thing. In other words, this was never a concern in your life at all. You never made it a priority at all. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. 
And, uh, but they said to him, they protested, Master, he already has ten minas. Uh, and, Jesus, and, and Jesus tells the parable, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. In other words, the person that uses, uh, you know, what uh, uh, God uh, gives to them, takes that step of faith and obeys, uh, to uh, who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And then he, Jesus closed the parable by saying, but bring here those enemies of mine. Again, this is speaking of the master of Jesus at his second coming. And bring those enemies of mine, those who had rejected him as Messiah, those who were hostile as the Jewish religious leaders were, and uh, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Speaking of symbolically of the white throne judgment. And so we'll stop there tonight. And, um, but this, this phrase, and, and I know it was a that kind of New Year message that was on my heart to share this year, is this uh, parable of, of the Minas. But that, that phrase, from the first time I heard it as a new Christian, in the old King James. There was no new King James back then. There were rotary phones too. So, um, uh, but that so helped me occupy till I come, take care of business until I come. Because the world is so big, the need is so great, uh, it, it, the mess is so great and we just look at it and we think what in the world can I do to make a difference in the midst of that kind of, of need and Jesus just comes in and says occupy till I come to just seek, seek God and say how do you want to spend my life and where do you want to spend my life and as I seek Him in that way, and He plants me in that place, whether it would be as a farmer or as an accountant or as a banker or whatever it might be, and, and we, then we know this is what God, as best as I can hear, has called me to do. And then now to live my life in that sphere for Him, His call, and then not to forget to bring the gospel with me into that environment. And that's all he asks of us. Not to change the world. That's God's problem. This is all marching toward, toward God's end. All he says is just take the gospel in, into and in, in, in spiritual influence into the place that I have called you uh, and let me find you there when I return. Well, I can do that. And as I mentioned in, the, in, the, in January related to that, so you have someone who is a, a student in uh, uh, college, and they look and they say, the Lord's return is so close. Look at the prophecies. I mean, he's knocking on the door. I'm standing on tiptoes waiting for him to return, and surely I'm wasting my time by getting a college education when he's so near and... Um, and so maybe I need to become a missionary or something like that on the other side of the world. No, 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 no. If he's called you to get a college education and he comes back while you're getting that in preparation for what you think is his ultimate call upon your life, but this is the plan to get there, then he will find you 
occupying until he comes exactly where he expected to find you. And if he calls you as a, 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 a wife who is called to, to marry and raise godly children, even though the whole world seems like it's going up in flames and so many people need to hear the gospel and all these other parts of the world, maybe I need to become a missionary and I would feel so guilty if I just did this thing that God put on my heart and that is to marry and have children. No. These are all pressures that we put upon ourselves. And so if that's what God has called you to do, then when He comes and He finds you in that place, raising godly children as unto Him, you have occupied until He comes. And so the, the parable has an exhortive element to it that is important, but it also has a very comforting element to it as well. We're in a good place for one day standing before Jesus at that Bema seat as we simply understand this is His will and His plan for my life. I'm living that here in this place and I'm bringing the gospel and kingdom influence into that place. And then we will be ready for whenever He does return and one day we stand before the judgment seat or the reward seat of Christ for faithfulness to His call upon our lives. It's been a great encouragement to me. I'm a fixer. I'm a, I'm, I, I am so type A. Uh, I want to fix everything. And, uh, and, and I want to, uh, there isn't anything that I see that my mind doesn't start to work on how to fix this thing and get it right. And that includes watching the problems of the world. So what a relief it is to have that taken off of your shoulders. Can you imagine? And, uh, and so it is a great encouragement. Occupy until I come. That'll be enough. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. And it'll be powerful. I'm not done. But go ahead and stand. Because another and, and He will make it powerful. It's not, it's not a, a, a nothing or a little tiny thing we're offering to Him. Now it's up to Him to multiply that for His kingdom and He will do it. Father, thank You for